Welcome to episode seven of the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson, and with me, as always, is Aaron Miller. Uh, this week, we had Apple's earnings report for the second calendar quarter of 2015, their Q3. Um, and so that's going to be the main subject of our conversation today. We'll start off by talking about the Apple Watch specifically, which was one of the most sort of watched for and interesting aspects of earnings. And then after that, we'll do our question of the week, which Aaron is going to be tackling this week based on a post that he wrote for Beyond Devices this week about uh, the Apple Watch and how it really is more like the iPod than it is like the iPhone. So we'll drill into why that's the case when we go through that segment. And then after that, we'll go back to the rest of Apple's earnings and talk a bit about some of the other aspects. And then, of course, as always, we'll wrap up with our pick of the week. And it's my turn to do that this week. And I have a book to recommend to you. Uh, we'll start out with Apple's earnings, though, and specifically the Apple Watch. And um, I did a couple of posts this uh, week, uh, one on Monday in anticipation of the Apple Watch numbers, just explaining quite how hard it was going to be to read the tea leaves on uh, how many Apple Watches had actually been sold. And then on Tuesday, I did a follow-up based on the actual numbers uh, and kind of talked about what my estimate was and, and uh, was quite transparent about the process. But to my mind, one of the most striking things was just that uh, it looked like the Apple Watch number uh, was quite a bit lower than certainly I had expected and that many other people had expected. And uh, a lot of those estimates were based on talking to people in the supply chain who make components and so on for the Apple Watch and therefore should have a fairly good sense of how many um, it was making and selling. And so that was the surprise. It wasn't um, you know, Apple's fault that everybody overestimated. Uh, Apple certainly never, never gave us a number to think about. Um, but it was still surprising that it was so much lower than many of us expected. Aaron, any kind of initial thoughts about all that? Yeah, you know, the funny part about this is that everybody attributes this disappointment to uh, sort of lower than expected demand. I mean, whenever Apple's sales numbers are low on any product, especially the first time it comes out, everybody kind of freaks out because they seem like it's an indicator of demand. And yet, I mean, the Apple Watch was easily the most constrained product at its launch that I think Apple has probably ever sold uh, supply constrained I should mm-hmm. say and, and so um, yeah you know I think the numbers were lower than what I thought I wouldn't have been like last week you predicted that Apple wouldn't say anything about the numbers and you were right I was expecting well if Apple does anything it would be a milestone type announcement you know they'll say hey we, we're not going to report this regularly but hey we've sold 5 million of these um, but uh yeah, I, although I'll be honest, Jan, I've seen, and I want to ask you this question. So you estimated a little over 2 million Apple Watches sold? Yeah. And uh, I've seen other people take the same earnings report and estimate over 4 million Apple Watches sold. I'm having a hard time seeing how they're coming up with that. I mean, yeah. what, what do you think? Like, what do you think they're thinking? Just yeah, I think there's a couple of possible things. I mean, I had a lot of conversations on Twitter the day of earnings. You know, I was supposed to be on vacation, but it's kind of hard to stay away from some of this stuff uh, when you're self-employed, especially. And so I did follow it very closely and had a lot of conversations with people on Twitter. And it was interesting to see. Certainly my opinion changed as the, as the earnings call went on and various other sort of tidbits sort of uh, snuck out. Um, there was this one interesting remark from Luca Maestri, the Apple CEO, 
CFO about how sales or sell through specifically was ahead of either the iPhone uh, or the iPad over the equivalent sort of nine week period, which was a really tricky thing to work with because the iPad was on sale for about 12 weeks when that first quarter was released. So it wasn't quite comparable in that sense. So, but yeah, I, I think that made people, some people think that the overall number of shipments was higher. The problem is, and I kind of went through the details in, in those two posts I did earlier this week, that um, in the other products category where the Apple Watch sits, um, the trend is downward, but only slightly downward. It's about 10% year on year. And so in order to get to a number like 4 million, you have to assume that that rate of decline in everything else, which includes things like iPod and Apple TV and accessories and so on, you have to assume that that rate of decline dramatically accelerated and then it was down right. you know, more like 30% or something. And therefore, the Apple Watch revenue number that you have to play with is that much higher. So instead of being a billion or maybe up to 1.2, which is the range that I estimated, it was perhaps 1.5 or something. But that really means you take another 300 million out of all those other products. And there's no particular reason to think that they did... Um, sell particularly badly um, compared to previous performance. So that's why I'm skeptical of that. You also have to assume a very low average selling price. And even my estimate requires quite a low average selling price considering you know, it basically means that they sold almost all sport watches, relatively few watches and almost no additions to, to come up with that number. Yeah, and anecdotally, I've seen a lot more of the regular watches out there than, um, than I think a low average selling price would would justify you yeah. know I, like more people have bought the stainless steel watch than than a really low average selling price would sort of fit yeah I, I, and i wanted to add to that the uh <clears throat> it, it you indicate you you're talking about how the how the other category everything else in the category would have had to really plummet um i think a lot of people hung on to the statement i think it was tim cook who said that there was a decline in the other products. Yeah. Sort of like he was sort of hinting like, look, there's room for mm-hmm. a decent number of watches to be sold in here. Um, and I think a lot of people hung on to that as as maybe an excuse to to pump up the Apple Watch estimates. Right. One, one other interesting sort of almost conspiracy theory level comment that I saw, and I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head who it was, um, but it was, and it was only hinted at, but it was this suggestion. Apple talked about um, taking inventory levels down during the quarter. You know, this is always one of the more arcane aspects of these earnings calls was, you know, how, what happens to inventory? In other words, there's products that are sitting on shelves with retailers and Apple's own stores. And they actually reduced inventory across all products by about a million units. Right. And so one theory is that Apple basically sold through a bunch of units that were sitting on shelves for things like iPods and accessories, which wouldn't show up in revenues because you've already registered the revenues when you shipped it to the store. Um, and therefore, they, they could recognize less revenue than usual on things like iPods and accessories in the other products category, um, given how many they actually sold in stores. So it's a bit complex, but it would be an explanation for why you know sales of those products wouldn't have to have dropped quite as far as you would think for revenues to drop because you sell them out of inventory rather than selling from, from new shipments to stores, given that they had new iPods. Uh, going, you know, being launched uh, last week, which we talked about on last week's podcast, you know, you could argue that they might have tried to get rid of some of the iPod inventory, especially. Um, so that does provide a little wiggle room potentially, but that's as I say, almost conspiracy like theory level 30%. stuff. It doesn't feel like 30%. Right. It doesn't no. feel like a 30% wiggle room. Right. I mean, the other category, like you said, would have had to drop pretty dramatically, you know, within the other products for mm-hmm. 
for there to have really been, you know, anything over four million watches sold. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's but but that's kind of the point, right? Is it doesn't matter that it was only. I mean, if you were spot on, or even if you were guessed high, I don't I don't think that is telling us anything about watch demand, only because it was such a constrained product. I, I mean. Yeah. It, it was there was no I can't think of any product Apple has sold since sort of new Apple like you know Jobs 2.0 mm-hmm. Apple, where they had so many different constraints of getting right. the watch out to consumers. I mean the worst they've had before is you know, like phones or iPads where the wait time was three or four weeks. Right. But, you know at the time they still had retail units showing up, mm-hmm. so you could sort of get lucky and find an iPhone in stock during those right. know, slow shipping Yeah, I've periods. done that myself. Yeah. Yeah, and that wasn't even the case with the watch. Right. I mean, so yeah, no, they didn't even start selling them until you know, about two weeks ago, which was after the end of the quarter. So, right. so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. And that was one big reason why I didn't expect them to release numbers, because the numbers don't really tell you about underlying demand. They told you a lot right. more about supply. And it was only you know, in the last couple of weeks, too, that they finally had Apple's uh, watches being sold in all the countries where Apple even has stores online. So... You know, they have 16 countries where they have Apple retail stores, uh, and it took them until, you know, July to get the Apple Watch even onto the online version of the store in those countries where they have retail stores, let alone into the actual retail stores themselves. So quite a few smaller European countries and other countries around the world where they don't actually have them on sale still, even online. Um, So, yeah, there's still a lot of... Um, room for Apple to expand distribution and therefore to for demand to increase. And it was interesting that Tim Cook said June sales were bigger than April and May. So it's actually ramping up over time rather than slowing down after initial burst. I suspect that was going... I mean, there was a report that floated around that that uh, Apple Watch sales kind of went off a cliff yeah, the during slice, that last month. Slice data. Yeah, yeah, slice data. And then the other thing... Well, and it... You know, Slice isn't getting Apple Store receipts, and the right. way I mean, so the way Slice collects this data is, is essentially by sort of peeking into people's email and seeing mm-hmm. what receipts, their email receipts they're getting, and that's how they sort of blow up this estimate. Which, by the way, is a totally untested, or largely untested, you know, market analysis tool, um, from what I've read. Uh, but the other thing about it is that you know, if people, if if it's starting to show up in retail during that time period, of course, you know, it totally excludes that. Yeah, yeah, yeah fewer no, like yeah. Apple's online Apple Store receipts. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, and then the other th- reason I think that uh, um, he said, uh, I, I think the other reason Tim Cook said that about the June quarter being stronger is because shipping times improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another funky thing that happens with Apple with newly launched products is when shipping times improve, people take it as a sign that demand is falling off. Right. Right. Because what happens is they sort of think, okay, not as many people want these watches. Mm-hmm. So that's why Apple's able to catch up on its shipping time. Of course, right. the other side of that coin is Apple's just getting better at making watches mm-hmm. and can pump more of them out. And yeah, I think that was another fact, reason that he said that. That probably spurs demand so. too. When when they actually become available <laughs> with shorter shipping times, it's I don't know. When you've got a product, you're not going to see it for six weeks. Like, what's the point in ordering it now? I'll just order it later. Whereas right. shipping times start to come down. You're like, okay, I could have this next week or tomorrow or yeah. whatever it might be. And so I actually think it probably spurs demand when the shipping times start to come down. That's right. But you, but it's like clockwork every time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Apple has a new product coming out. The shipping times improve. You have a group of naysayers who who say, oh, see, this is evidence that demand is falling off. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? And the same thing with earnings in general. That you get all the same themes almost every time. Right. On both sides, you know, people saying, why isn't the stock market responding better to these amazing results? And people on the other side saying, you know, oh, Apple's getting hammered and it's all going wrong. And you know, it's just right. ridiculous overreaction on both sides every time. Yeah. Um, so all of that takes us nicely into kind of where the Apple Watch goes next and how we should be thinking about it as a product. And, and Aaron... Um, Aaron's taking out question of the week this week, um, and Aaron wrote a post on Beyond Devices this week about how the watch is more like the iPod than the iPhone. Um, and you know, you've seen a lot of people kind of assuming that you know the iPhone's been this enormous success, and everything else kind of has to be measured against it. Um, you know, Aaron's piece kind of wrote out several reasons why. Uh, the, the Apple Watch might be more like the iPod, actually, and less like the iPhone itself. So we're going to go through each of the three reasons why he talks about that. And the first reason, Aaron, that you mentioned was that it's an ecosystem product. So what did you mean by that? And, and how is the Apple Watch an ecosystem product in the same way that the iPod was? Yeah, so if you look back at the iPod, it was not a truly independent platform. I mean, it was a platform of sorts, uh, you know, that supported other products like Nike running, for example, things like that. But but really every iPod eventually had to be connected to a computer uh, synced with an iTunes library. And, and, and so in that sense, the iPod as originally conceived and really the way it spent most of its life until the iPod Touch was, was an extension of the computers we had, you know, on our desks. Um, in fact, if you re remember the Digital Hub strategy, this is the way Apple talked about the iPod. Like they, right. you know, they sort of, they had, the idea was is that the Mac was the digital hub of your home and you had digital, you know, still cameras and video cameras and, and, and the iPod was one of those products that they sort of like drew the spoke from the iPod to the computer, which was the hub. And, and, and so that's what I mean by an ecosystem product is that the uh, sort of the upper limit or the upper threshold of iPods was always the number of computers out there. Right. I mean, granted, you could have a couple iPods per computer, but the point was is that was sort of like the the high end of where the market could go for iPods right. was the number of computers that people had. And, uh, and, and the watch is essentially the same thing. Um, it's, it, you know, the, the upper threshold for the watch is the number of iPhones out there in the market. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, this case, it really is kind of a one to one relationship. You know, you're not going to have very many people buying multiple watches right. to sync with a single iPhone and, and and so what that leads to or what that takes us to is this idea that the watch is you know very deliberately designed as an extension to the iPhone and therefore relies on the iPhone ecosystem for its market and if you want to look at how big the watch can grow you got to look at the number of iPhones out in the world in the same way it was with the iPod you have to look at the number of computers out in the world right yeah absolutely okay um, the second point you made was that it was unsubsidized. Um, so why is that significant? Well, you know, this is the thing about the iPhone that drives me crazy that people don't appreciate. When they expect Apple to have these sort of like knockout iPhone, you know, uh, the next iPhone size product, like they, everybody expected that of the I I iPad, for example. It's an unreasonable expectation because the iPhone is such a uniquely positioned product market-wise because, because of the carrier subsidies that drive sales. Um, people don't have to pay upfront for iPhones. They're essentially financing them through their carrier purchases. And, you know, at first it was through subsidized contracts, you know, where the price was just built into the contract. And now it's with, you know, Next and all these other, um, all, all these, all these other sort of like pay as you go kind of phone purchase programs that the carriers have. But 
there's the you know the watch isn't like that and nor, nor was the ipod people had to pay out of pocket for these devices and uh and that changes the purchasing mentality because you get higher entry points for the products um and uh and, and so it doesn't without that subsidy it, it, it's going to have lower growth it's also going to have slower upgrade cycles as a result um you know, it's easier to sort of justify an iPhone upgrade because you've been in your contract for a year and a half or two years, and now you're upgrade eligible, and you know the phone is going to be ch- is is going to be cheap because you're just sort of kicking off a new subsidy, and and th- that's not going to be the case with the watch, just as it wasn't with the iPod, and and you know it's funny because people also forget, like I, I think there's sort of like this false memory that the iPhone is the reason that the iPod eventually flattened, but the truth is if you look back iPod sales were already flattening before the iPhone became a thing. And uh, that had a lot to do with sort of this saturated market where, you know, basically everybody who was going to get an iPod had gotten one. And there was no upgrades. There wasn't a quick upgrade cycle. And so because people weren't constantly replacing their iPods, uh, sales started flattening and people got concerned. And Apple, well, they had already launched the iPhone, but it hadn't become big yet. And the iPhone sort of, you know, took Apple up, up to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with all of that. I actually wrote a post um, a year ago, I guess it was, June last year, um, the title of which was On the Replicability of the iPhone, which kind of talked about why, you know, if you compare everything to the iPhone, it's always going to be disappointing because it has these right. unique characteristics, some of which you've just been talking about. Um, so the third one that you mentioned was that the, the Apple Watch is category-defining. And, and you could certainly argue the iPhone was kind of category-defining too, but you, you argue that the iPod was more so. Can you explain that? Yeah, I, I think what you need to do is sort of look at the relative markets before these devices were launched by Apple. So it, so in the case of the iPhone, we'd look at smartphones and what they were at the time. And in the case of uh, the iPod, you'd look at... Uh, you'd look at what mp3 players were like and the truth is that uh, the smartphone market that the iphone entered was already a pretty mature market i mean you know the uh, blackberry was sort of the gold standard of smartphones at the time it wasn't nearly as sort of versatile obviously as the iphone uh, but there was already a pretty clearly defined category of smartphones and, and in fact, Windows Mobile was huge at the time. And w- you could get apps on Windows Mobile phones and it wasn't elegant or easy and the apps were a lot more limited, but they existed. There was, there was, it, it, it was essentially a market that had matured um, at the time the iPhone showed up and then the iPhone essentially took it to a completely new level. That is not at all what the case with the iPod. When the iPod launched, MP3 players were a bit of a mess. They were sort of niche products that, you know, kind of tech nerds had people uh, and there were all these weird trade-offs because you could get really big clunky ones <coughs> that had higher storage capacity or you could buy these little tiny expensive flash based ones where you could fit maybe a couple albums on them you know, there were also trade-offs in battery life user interfaces were universally terrible um, and uh, and and that was a market that needed definition at the time whereas you that's that wasn't necessarily the case with smartphones the the watch is that now if you look at the market the watch is entering into it's a poorly defined market it's one that you know these products haven't yet sort of crystallized 
Um, and it's not just smartwatches, it's wearables too. Mm-hmm. Um, you have all these different fitness wearables that are all kind of all over the map in terms of their features and abilities. And companies are just trying to find the way. And I think the Apple Watch, if it's anything like the iPod, which I think it will be, will essentially crystallize and define that product line. And so you're going to see a few things happen like happened with the iPod. You're going to see sort of these these weird niche players showing up and eventually dying off. You're going to see... Uh, you're going to see big competitors, you know, copy features, but never quite get to the same level of both sales or, um, you know, or profitability. Um, and it's going to kind of dominate the market, essentially. Right. Okay. So we've, you've talked through these three reasons why, why it's the same. So what, what do we read into all of that? And sort of what are the implications? I think you made some predictions, too, in your piece. What, what, what predictions can we make if that's our sort of framework for looking at the Apple Watch? So one of the, I'm not going to take these in order from the article, um, but one that I think is most interesting to me is I think if it ends up being like the iPod, you're going to see differentiation within the Apple Watch line that's more than just build materials. Because that's what we have right now is, right. I mean, the difference is aluminum, steel, or gold. I mean, that's kind of it. Well, I guess the sapphire, you know, crystal in the watch too. But, uh, but I mean, really, that's kind of it as far as differentiating the watch. I mean, you got the size difference, but that's not a huge difference either. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a much larger differentiation in the watch over the years. I I think you'll get more capable and less capable versions of the watch. I think, for example, it wouldn't surprise me if in three years from now, Apple released a wearable that wasn't actually really a watch, or if it was a watch, it just had a tiny digital display. Mm -hmm. And it was just essentially a fitness product. And they call it the Apple Fit. And everybody will tease Apple because they'll say, hey, this is, you know... This is a, a really limited kind of silly product, and and then that's when you know others of us will say, hey, what about the iPod Shuffle? You know, right. it had its place, right. a yeah. really low entry point. I, I think the reason, part of the reason that can happen is precisely because the watch is an ecosystem product. Hmm. You know, tracking fitness the way it works now, every fitness band needs a, a smartphone to connect to or talk to, or at the very least, a computer. Like right. if you buy one of those Garmin, you know, big watches. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and I think because it's an ecosystem product like that, a- a- Apple can use the uh, Apple can create new form factors. And I think fitness is clearly a core function yeah, of the watch as they see it. And so it wouldn't surprise me if you get a hundred dollar Apple Fit band, mm. you know, in a couple of years from now. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I've I've thought from the, even before the Apple Watch was announced, I, I wondered if it might come in some other form factor than than a watch because it seemed like there was quite a bit of potential to do other kinds of jewelry and that kind of thing. And certainly, right. Angela Aaron's expertise is in that area, and a number of the other hires have, are in jewelry more broadly, and and you know other luxury goods. And it does seem like they could broaden the line over time. Right. And I think part of the reason Apple's going to want to do that um, is because, like the iPod, sort of dri- dri- the iPod drove Mac sales through the halo effect, and mm-hmm. and in fact, it's kind of funny because you can find out there, and I linked to it in the article. There's a chart of PC sales as a multiple of Mac sales, mm-hmm. um, and essentially from the iPod on, that that multiple has been shrinking. Meaning right. there have been more Macs sold relative to PCs mm-hmm. during the basically the life of the iPod. And and that is driven a lot by the retail stores. I don't want to discount the retail stores and, and, and give all credit to the iPod. But the iPod definitely had this halo effect on purchasers of computers. And they had an iPod, they loved it, and then they started paying attention to the Mac the next time they needed a computer. And I think you could see sort of... Um, 
a, a similar drive. I think people will see the watch, they'll want to watch, and and I think Android loyalty, you know, isn't especially high with most Android users, and so I, I think the watch could be something that creates switchers. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Were, were there any other predictions, or was that? Well, there is one kind of out there one that I mentioned okay. last that I'm curious in, on your opinion mm. with this one, uh, you know, whether or not the Apple Watch would ever actually work with Android phones. Right. Uh, and the reason I say this is because, so when the iPod first launched, it was Mac only. In fact, you had to have a FireWire cable and very few PCs at the time had FireWire c connections in them. Uh, and then Apple sort of recognized, look, there are only maybe a total of 25 million Macs out there. And that's not a very big market for the iPod. Right. And so they released one for Windows and they launched iTunes for Windows and all that. And, and in fact, you know, people at the time said that hell froze over, right? Because Apple right. was producing a product outside of its own little ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, the market is really different here than it was for the iPod because the platform, you know, 25 million Macs is not a big enough market for the iPod to have grown. Right, right. But today the watch has 500, almost 500 million iPhones. Mm -hmm. And it's a much bigger market for the watch to grow into. But the question yeah. is whether or not Apple thinks that's a big enough market for the right, watch to grow right, into. Right, And there are a lot of Android phones out there. And, you know, it seems kind of weird to think of, a, of an Apple Watch working with an Android phone, but it, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't strike me as an especially technical hurdle to overcome. Yeah. No, it's and not a so, technical thing. Is It's more a strategic thing, I suspect. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it would be a hell freezing over kind of moment. It would feel like that if it mm -hmm. happened. But there is a precedent. And, yeah. it, you know, it could, it could happen. So. Yeah, and you've even got, you know, obviously Apple Music is going to be on Android later this year as well. So it wouldn't even be the first time in recent history that right. Apple had taken a product to, to Android without, you know, an obvious huge strategic reason to do so. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's no longer as obvious as it may once have been that it wouldn't do that. That's right. And in fact, the irony right here is that if Apple did it, they would be using the flexibility of the Android platform that most people love about Android versus iPhones. Right, <laughs> right. right. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, they'd, be, like, they'd be taking advantage of sort of their competitor's strength if they actually did it, because um, it would require a much more flexible platform right. than, say, Apple is giving to Android smartwatches. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. No, it's true. I mean, things like Pebble work with it, but that's because they work at a fairly generic level. Right. Um, but yeah, the other way would be very interesting. OK, great. Well, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it. Um, let's. Talk about the rest of Apple's earnings for a few minutes. Obviously, the Apple Watch wasn't the only product or uh, any, anywhere near the largest product, you know, about a billion dollars yeah. in revenue compared to uh, 50 billion in total, roughly, um, for, for the company for the quarter. So, um, you know, the iPhone, the iPad, the Mac, um, various other things were, were also part of the story. Was there anything that kind of particularly stood out to you, Aaron? Um, the iPhone miss uh, was a little bit, I guess, surprising, but. Um but I think everybody expected, you know, I mean, it's not a huge quarter for Apple when it comes to iPhones because it's mm. getting closer to the S bump, you know. Yeah. Um, I know. What did you think about the iPhone numbers? Were were analysts being over optimistic? Do you think? Or I were, think they were. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, I think you have this issue where 
you know, Apple's gone through these interesting cycles of, of, and I think we may have talked about this last week, of for a while they provided very conservative guidance and then smashed through it. And, and so the street just came to expect them to smash through it every time and became kind of counterproductive. And so a couple of years ago, they kind of reset expectations and said, we're now going to provide a range rather than a single point. And that range indicates our actual expectation of what we'll do. And they stayed within that very well for several years. And then just in the last couple of quarters, since essentially the launch of the iPhone 6 is, um, they've started to blow through their own guidance again. And so this has created these unrealistic expectations that, well, maybe this is how it's going to be now. And, um, you know, and so I think the analyst expectations were higher. Apple actually beat its own guidance um, overall, um, which is the only guidance it did provide, was, was the usual top-line kind of stuff. Um, and it beat that. Um, but the problem is that analysts were expecting it to beat it by more, essentially. Um, and, you know, iPhone's a good example of that. You know, they sold far more iPhones than they've ever sold in a second calendar quarter before. But, you know, analysts were expecting even more. And I, I think what's really happening is that Apple itself doesn't know how many of these things it's going to sell. It's really entered kind of new territory over the last couple of quarters, especially in China. And I think Apple's management has said, you know, this is what we're expecting. You know, we don't want to promise more because we can't guarantee more, but this is what we're expecting. And in reality, for several quarters in a row now, they've actually sold slightly more than they were expecting. And I think they've been as surprised as anybody else. Um, and it's not something you can yet bank on. Um, but, you know, China in particular is this huge factor now in iPhone sales, especially last quarter, Q1, because of the Chinese New Year and everything. But even this quarter, uh, it looks like it was really big again, a huge year-on-year -year increase. Um, it was over 100%, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. I, I have all these charts that I put together, and the, the, the Chinese line has just gone way away from any of the other lines in terms of you know revenue year on year. Um, it's just absolutely huge growth. Um, everything else is growing pretty well, too, but it's in the sort of 30%, 40% range, and China's, as you say, over 100%. So, so that was enormous. Uh, boost and and so yeah and Q2 is you know normally a quieter sort of lull quarter anyway because Q3 the very tail end of Q3 you get the new phones Q4 is obviously massive Q1 you get the carryover from supply constraints and then China um, but yeah Q2 was unusually large for them as well yeah you know I think China is probably um, one of the in most interesting uncertainties about Apple right now. I think mm. the truth is because Apple didn't have new product lines for a while, which is again pretty normal for them. You know, they usually go a few, at least a few years between major yeah. product announcements. But I think everybody kind of got accustomed to Apple sort of settling in. Um, and I think part of the reason for all the over you know, for the overestimates on the iPhone sales probably also have to do with the six and the six plus, mm -hmm. um, because the bigger screen was massive. Uh, when it was launched. I mean, you know, there were a bunch of Android switchers. There were, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of people who preferred the 6 Plus, which drove up margins and average selling price. Um, and I wonder if analysts were maybe being over-optimistic about how far that screen size change would carry, uh, you know, into this quarter. Um, because, you know, we don't know how many people are still excited about getting a bigger phone. Right. Right, yeah, and, and, and last two quarters, Steve, um, Tim Cook has talked on the earnings call about 
um, the percentage of people that have upgraded, and I can't remember what the number was this quarter off the top of my head, but the implication is, you know, we haven't seen everybody upgrade by any means. You know, it's a two-year right. upgrade cycle for the most part. And so, yes, this was the year the new phones launched, but there will still be plenty of people come this fall when we get the, presumably the S phones uh, at these new sizes that, that haven't upgraded from their, you know, 5S from two years right. ago. So, um, you know, there's no reason to think that this suddenly drops off a cliff at the end of the year. And, in fact, we should have up to another year of this kind of outsized growth year on year. Yeah. And another interesting comment that I read um, was the currency issues mm. that Apple had selling iPhones. I mean, the dollar is really strong internationally right now, and it's not because the U.S. economy is, you know, rolling like crazy. It has more to do with other economies really struggling, right? But, right. But, uh, but with the really strong dollar, essentially iPhones become more expensive to everybody else in the world. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Trip Chowdhury, who is not a, a well-loved Apple analyst, I'll just right. start with that, right? I, I think he was the one who, for example, said that this is pre-iWatch. He said, look, Apple, you've got three months to announce an, uh, a watch or you're dead, right? And it was right. kind of a completely ridiculous mm -hmm. claim. But, but he did make a really interesting comment on this latest quarterly report, essentially noting that if you, if you were to track Apple's revenues by constant currency, which means you sort of take out the, you know, the surging dollar right now, and you sort of normalize that, um, that Apple actually beat the street by quite a bit. Um, right. In fact, by over $4 billion mm -hmm. if you use constant currency. And another analyst essentially described the strong dollar as a headwind for Apple right. um, when it comes to iPhone sales, because it, it's having to sell phones at relatively more expensive prices to international buyers. And... Uh, because it, you know, it Apple runs on dollars, and right. and that's what people fundamentally in the end are paying for iPhones with, and mm -hmm. that would make sense that iPhone sales would go down, or it maybe be less than people expected if they're not taking the strong dollar into account. Right. No, absolutely. And it's funny because the whole foreign exchange thing has been a real theme through earnings for the last two quarters, at least. You know, and yeah. I track, you know, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, you know, all these companies will say, you know, this was our result and this is what it would have been if we're not a foreign exchange impact. And there's this huge emphasis on that because without the foreign exchange impact, growth would have been really good. And with it, it's almost negligible, in some cases negative. Um, you know, I was just looking at Amazon's results earlier. I think they have 3% growth internationally reported, but 22% percent if you take out the foreign exchange impact right. um, you know Apple barely mentions it I mean it is mentioned and they do give the numbers but it's like when your numbers are that big you don't actually need to spend a lot of time talking about how much better it would have been if currency problems hadn't been there you know it's it's still done enormously well even with that but but yeah you take the currency effects out and suddenly it gets even bigger yeah but it, it, in this case it was potentially a difference between you know beating estimates on iPhone sales versus not Right. Um, right. But again, that's more a function of the analysts that are making the estimations. Yeah, yeah. So. No, absolutely. No, but and beating their own guidance marginally versus beating it very healthily too. That's the other right. thing. But um, the iPad is one thing. You know, hardly anybody's talked about it this time around. I think I suspect the reason is that the trend is very much the same. It's kind of yeah. down, down year on year, much as it has been for the last several quarters. Um, you know, it's still a really quite a large business for Apple. It's, you know, a good one for them. Um, but, you know, the questions remain as to whether it's, you know, the larger iPhones eating into it, whether it's some sort of saturation being reached, whether it's just a lack of upgrades, you know, or a combination most likely of all of those things. But, um, you know, that, that seems to have just become a story that people have accepted at this point and almost moved on from. 
Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I don't think the story really changed, so there wasn't much reason for people to talk about it again. Mm. It, um, it's, it, it certainly seems like the, the market is saturated. You know, tablets sort of have a particular use, and, and I, you know, I think if the tablet doesn't change, the iPad doesn't change in any dramatic ways, I think any growth you're going to see there um, is going to be small. And I think most right. of the sales you're going to see are upgrades. Um, but then again, there's, you know, there are the rumors of the 12-inch or whatever iPad right. Pro coming out this fall, um, which I honestly wouldn't be surprised by. I think Apple's always willing to, you know, try new form factors, at least eventually. Hmm. And, uh, I, you know, but, I, but the truth is I don't know how important that will be for people. It would definitely be more of a laptop replacement than any iPad previous. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how attractive that is. I would also say that the upgrades in iOS 9 relative to the iPad, you know, the idea of making the iPad more of like a, a work machine mm -hmm. and the way the keyboard works and that and the split screen and those sorts of things. Um, there are a lot of people speculating that that's all precursors to a big iPad. Yeah, um, that seems very plausible to me, to be honest. How big of a difference do you think that would make, though, having a big iPad? I don't know how much of a difference it would make. I mean, I think... Um, I think a new iPad that's just bigger than the current ones by itself wouldn't be that big a deal. I think the multitasking and the kind of side-by-side -side stuff is absolutely critical if it is going to make a difference. Um, but I, I just wonder, you know, somebody who who wants a smallish kind of very portable computer, you know, do you just go with a MacBook or um, something else? You know, is is I. Why are you so desperate to have a device that doesn't have a keyboard, I guess, to do your work on? You know, <laughs> what is it about it? Is it just you know, the ability to carry a single device? I mean, you know, the Microsoft Surface computers have been sold on that basis for some time now. Like, this is a tablet that becomes a laptop if you attach a keyboard. Well, you know, they've sold a few of them, but it's less than a million a quarter, you know, and even a good quarter. Um, so it's, it's just not clear to me that, that that by itself is this amazing value proposition that people are just going to fall all over, uh, whether it's larger screens or side-by-side -side stuff. You know, I think people still want the kind of computer they're used to with a full keyboard that's really designed for a mouse and, and that kind of thing. You know, even a larger screen with side-by-side -side multitasking, do you want to work in a spreadsheet on an iPad, you know, and, and do complex kind of number crunching and that kind of thing? I just, I don't. I know that much right. and you know if you're just writing long form stuff well yeah attach a bluetooth keyboard and you might be fine but if you're doing anything more complex than that if you're trying to work with a powerpoint or keynote presentation or right. if you're you know managing a complex spreadsheet or anything like that it just feels like a poor fit still regardless of what apple does um but you know i i no doubt that if they do a 12 inch ipad it's because they're hearing from at least some businesses and business users that that's something that they want. So I think it, it might well provide a small boost, but I don't see it really kind of turning the overall trend around. I think the only thing that will turn the overall trend around is if people who've had an iPad for three or four years finally decide they need another one. Um, because if you really break down Apple's numbers around the iPad, what you find is they are still selling quite a few to new people. The challenge is just not selling many to people that already have one. Um, and so the big question there is just have people had one and stopped using it and therefore don't need to replace it? Or right. is it just that they're very happy with it still? It still works fine for them, which is what I hear more often. Um, and so yes. the question is just, at what point does even an iPad 1 or 2 need to be replaced? And it feels like we're getting to that point, you know, five years after the iPad 1, four years after the iPad 2, this may be the point at which finally do need to start upgrading those. And that was when the growth really took off was about four years ago. So that should drive a big upgrade cycle if indeed, you know, people do decide to upgrade those. Yeah, the iPad has that same upgrade cycle problem that uh, that the iPod had. 
and right. that the watch may have, right? Yeah, because yeah, exactly. I think that's fact, a good question. And part of the problem with the iPad, ironically, is that it grew so fast. Yes. I mean, it was the fastest growing product Apple has sold yet mm-hmm. in terms of just number unit shipped. Yeah. And uh, for it to grow so fast like a rocket and then mm-hmm. just plateau almost as quickly, mm-hmm. I think has flummoxed a lot of people. Yeah, you know Apple watches because I think it's it sort of Apple. You know, first with the iPod and then with the iPhone, felt like a hit machine. And right. the iPad has been a hit, but to expect it to be, you know, if if the iPhone has been, you know, multiples of the iPod, I think it was really mm-hmm. unreasonable to expect the iPad to in turn be multiples of the iPhone. Right, for I the, mean, all the reasons the I- we've already talked about. Yeah, yeah. The iPad was the first Apple product that didn't basically expand the market for Apple products, right? So right. Mac, to, Mac to iPod was a huge expansion because, to your point earlier, you went to Windows users as well. Um, you know, iPod to iPhone was a huge expansion of the market because phones were a much bigger category than MP3 players were, but the iPad was not an expansion of the market. You know, what it did right. was it very quickly got to whatever maximum kind of penetration of the Apple user market was, but it was always going to be a subset of that. Right. Um, and, my, and the thing about the watch is, you know, does it follow a similar trajectory where it actually takes off pretty rapidly once you get past the supply constraints, but does it then reach some kind of peak and show similar characteristics to the iPad at that point? Yes, I've thought about that because I could have, I mean, I consider writing that piece as, you know, why the watch will be more like the iPad than the iPhone right, instead of right. comparing it to mm-hmm. the iPod. Yeah. Um, but I don't think the comparison is quite as fitting as it was for the iPod. And it's largely because the ecosystem idea. I, I, right. I mean, the iPad is its own ecosystem. It's its own mm-hmm. platform. Yeah. Uh, it's just that the market for it isn't very big. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, all these people who have phones could consider a watch. Mm-hmm. as sort of a helper, an extension of their phone. In fact, easily when I read watch reviews, easily the most mentioned and seems to be favorite feature just ahead of fitness is the fact that people can keep their phones in their pockets more right. because of their watch. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and the iPad had nothing like that going for it. It was right. just its own platform with relatively, I mean, I say a small market. It's a huge market, but relative to the iPhone, it's a small market. Right. So I think the watch has more upside in that sense because... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, you know, back in the early 2000s, everybody was listening to MP3s on their computers and wish they had them, you know, their entire with library them. to go right. with them. Yeah. I think the watch has a similar appeal as an extension mm-hmm. of the iPhone. Yeah, well, I think that appeal is less obvious. I think, you know, sure. a- Apple had, you know, with the with the iPod, it was, you know, thousand songs in your pocket kind of stuff. You know, it was very obvious what the value proposition was. You kind of already knew you needed it. You just didn't know that there could be a solution for that problem. And, you know, right. iPad in some ways was just, you know, for want of a better term, you know, larger iPhone, larger iPod touch, you know, it's more of the same, essentially. Um, right. Whereas the Apple Watch is definitely not just a smaller iPhone. It's actually a very different animal. And I think, although once you've got one, you start to understand what the value proposition is, you kind of have to buy it first, or at least talk to somebody who has one and really enjoys it and understand what, why it's useful to them. And this is why I, I continue to think that word-of-mouth marketing is going to be the single biggest thing for the Apple Watch. Like, you get enough people out there who, know, who love it um, and that tell you why. I think that's going to be the most powerful thing rather than more ads or anything else like that. You know, it's true, but I would say at the time the iPod was launched, a lot of people, you know, a lot of sort of, I just say normal people, you know, not, not techies, mm. sort of kind of laughed at the idea of needing to have your entire music library with you wherever you go. Mm. I mean, it was, it was certainly a, a convenience that 
they could see it being useful, but a lot of people back then had Discmans, you know, they had CD players in their car, mm -hmm. and iTunes is great at burning mix CDs, and right. I think a lot of people were pretty comfortable mm -hmm. with that, and they said, oh, you know, in fact, the common joke was, are you going to, I mean, so let's say you have, you know, a day's worth of music in your music library, are you going to sit and listen to your iPod for a full day? Of course not. You know, you're going right. to listen to it for little snippets at a time, but, mm -hmm. but uh, I think word of mouth drove iPod quite a bit early on. And I think the, it's, it's only in retrospect that it seems like the iPod was obvious in terms right. of its value to consumers. But at the time, it really was talked about as a luxury. Right. And I think that's the way people are talking about Apple Watch today, is mm -hmm. that it's a luxury. You know, you're paying money to keep your phone in your pocket, and that's kind of right. a funny thing. But mm -hmm. everybody I know who has an Apple Watch loves it because of that mm -hmm. feature. So. Right, right. And you're paying quite a bit of money for both of them, too. I mean, the original right. iPod and, and the current Apple Watch crop are you know, several hundred dollars worth of gear, you know, right. in addition to the iPhone that you already have, you may already have a Mac of, of some kind, you may already have an iPad, you know, how many of these devices do you really want to have to buy? And so, yeah, they really have to kind of make sense to you in some fundamental way that justifies spending that kind of money on them. Right. Cool. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for, for discussing Apple earnings for this week. Um, we may do some carryover discussion next week. We haven't decided on all our topics for next week yet, but um, we'll wrap up as we usually do um, with our pick of the week. And since Aaron had the question of the week this week, that means it's my turn to do the pick of the week. Uh, Aaron's given us a couple of really interesting things over the last few weeks. He gave us a uh, uh, music album uh, a few weeks ago from uh, Leon Bridges. And I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody seems to be talking about him now. I was uh, on a couple of flights yesterday in the in-flight <laughs> entertainment system. Um, they had a profile of Leon Bridges there. So, you know, he seems to be everywhere now. I um, should recommend the, more artists. There you go. Yeah, you really <laughs> launched him, apparently. Um, then, then last week, Aaron recommended something completely different, as Monty Python would say, and uh, recommended a, a fitness accessory um, called the Flip Belt. Uh, this week, though, is my turn, um, and I'm going to do something different again. I'm actually going to recommend a book, um, and uh, I, I have just been on vacation, and one of the advantages of being on vacation is you spend a lot of time traveling and therefore have time to read, which, you know, usually when I have time to read, I'm reading lots of short-form stuff. I don't get a lot of time to read books, and so this is probably the first book in quite a while that I've actually finished. Um, I've got so many half-finished books in my Kindle library. Um, but this one is a book by a guy called Eric Larson, and that's Eric with a K and Larson, L-A-R-S-O-N. And the name of the book is Dead Wake, and the subtitle is The Last Crossing of the Lusitania. Um, and Eric Larson's a fascinating author. I've read um, three and a half of his books now. Um, his third one is another one of those ones that I haven't finished yet. Um, but the first two that I read were this, this strange combination of um, historical... Um, uh, trend stuff, um, and then uh, a, a serial killer, um, which sounds like a really bizarre combination. But the first one was um, about the Chicago World's Fair and uh, a killer who was operating during the fair. And so on the one hand, it's all about the Chicago World Fair and what that tells us about the state of the world at the time, but also tracking the movements and eventual capture of this killer. Um, and the other one was about Marconi and the invention of radio and um, how that developed, and at the same time, the catching of um, Dr. Crippen, who's a famous English murderer, uh, and how radio was actually used to, to catch this guy. Um, the third book was about the um, American ambassador to Germany in the immediate sort of pre-Second World War period and his family and their experience in Germany. I've only about halfway through that. This one is about the Lusitania. And the Lusitania is one of those things that you know what's going to happen. You know in this book, eventually, this huge passenger liner is going to be sunk. 
um, and yet it's utterly compelling. I found it really compelling just to read about. And he does a great job just researching all the detail, not only on the boat, but the people on the boat, and not just the captain, but the passengers and who they were and their backstories and so on. And so even though you know what's coming, it's still amazingly compelling. Um, and I, I actually finished it right before we got on a train, and I was just really glad I wasn't traveling by boat because there's no way I would have got on that <laughs> boat. <laughs> Having just finished reading this book, it, the, the, the description of the actual sinking of the Lusitania is really harrowing. Um, but um, there's a lot of hope in there as well and a lot of other interesting stuff. But I found this really fascinating. Again, the name of the book is Dead Wake, and the author is Eric Larson. So I'll leave you with that recommendation. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, no, but yeah, I recommend all his books. The first two are a bit on the creepy side because of the whole sort of serial killer stuff. So that may sure. not be for everyone, but, but certainly this last one is uh, suitable for pretty much anybody who's interested in anything historical. Um, well, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, we appreciate you being with us. As always, please uh, leave us feedback on the uh, website or on, uh, on the podcast itself. And uh, let us know if there are any topics you want us to cover in future, especially if you have any questions that you want us to cover for our questions of the week in future weeks. Uh, again, we, th we thank you for being with us, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks.